Well, I'm very excited as well to welcome you to Family Worship Sunday. And um, to those kids that are especially joining us through Church Online, I mean, not just our physical campuses here in South Florida, but if you're joining us across the nation or around the world, then what we would love for you to do, if you'll take a moment, is just let us know, if it's okay with your mom and dad, that you join us and just send us a, a hello from the chat room online and let us offer a blessing back to you and for your family today as we have this time of worship together. Um, it is no news to parents how special and what precious treasures our children are and uh, what great joy they bring to our lives. So I want to say to our young people today, thank you so much for joining us, and we're inviting God's blessing upon you. But what we also know is that families can have sadness too. And as pastor, one of the sorrows that I share with couples in our church happens around couples who, for whatever reason, have not been able to bear a child. And... Um, and that reminds me today that we should take time on a family worship day to, to remember what a miracle every young life is and to invite God's blessing upon every person who is here as part of our church family, as part of God's family today. Um, sometimes as a parent, you may wonder if your little treasure is so precious. Um, <laughs> But we know in our hearts that we're sharing that joy together today. And I want to bring something to your attention maybe you haven't thought about before. And it's this fact that the first story Luke's gospel tells us about the first Christmas is about a couple who are not able to bear children. Did you know that? They're barren. That's the word the Bible uses. Luke chapter 1, verse 7, Zechariah and his wife had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. So for whatever reason, their nest has always been empty. And the double whammy is they're well along in years. What that means is that they've never had a baby and now their bodies are too old. Now, maybe you've never been barren like that, but Maybe you know what it feels like to be empty or to have some unfulfilled longings or to have wants that haven't come to pass or to maybe run out of steam, run out of energy, like, you know, on your drone when the charger goes down, kids, or maybe the battery uh, on your remote control is dead or maybe there was a time at a birthday party or at a Christmas event even where you opened your last gift only to discover that what you really wanted, you didn't get this year. You know what that's called? Disappointing, barren, empty. That's what we're talking about here. That's the feeling. That happens to grown-up kids too. Maybe there's some grown-up kid here today who's been trying and trying to land a business deal to get, a, to get this thing together that you know is gonna change everything, but for whatever reason, try as you might to no avail. Or maybe it's a relational kind of challenge or emptiness. Uh, you're single, not by direct choice maybe, but by circumstance. You, uh, you've told yourself, hey, I'm open, but I'm not going to settle, and you know what I mean. And so you've prayed, and you've tried, and you've hoped, and you've been introduced, and you've been networked, but so far, hmm, Right? That's what we're talking about. Or maybe someone is in a relationship and what you've discovered is it's not like the brochure. <laughs> right? You know, they say marriage is like a phone call in the night. First you get the ring, then you wake up. 
Yeah, I know. To those listening in in another language, that joke doesn't translate. So just, um, but relationships, oh my goodness. Relationships can be amazing. And on the other hand, they can be really tough. Male, female, male, female relating or parent, child relating or husband, wife relating or relative relating over the holidays or brothers and sisters in the same family. This can be tough, you know. We can't live without them, but sometimes we wonder what that might be like. Um, okay, so maybe you're not running on empty today, but you'd be willing to admit, well, my tank's not all the way full that there's something missing. There's something, there's something about this life. Um, it's not unusual to feel like maybe I'm missing something at some point. And spiritually, that may be where you are today. Feel like something might be missing. Something just isn't happening. Like, you know, you're going through the motions, but you're wondering, am I going anywhere? Like um, hamster wheel religion, you've seen the little hamster wheels? Like, maybe I'm on a dead end. I just keep hitting this wall. What is that? Well, your heart is empty, but craving. What we're talking about is being barren. Have you ever been spiritually barren? And it doesn't just happen to people. It doesn't just happen to couples. It doesn't just happen to families. It happens to entire cultures. It happens to whole nations, which in fact may be one of the reasons why Zechariah and Elizabeth were such a choice for God at this time. The whole nation of Israel, because that's the picture that we see in Luke chapter one. The whole nation of Israel has been in a time of spiritual drought, of barrenness, 400 years of silence from God. 40 decades, no word from a prophet. Four centuries, no word from God. In fact, if you have a hard copy Bible, there's this, probably this blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's this blank page there. You know what that blank space represents? 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament. What God has not been saying. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't time without activity. There's been lots of activity going on. In fact, world history would tell us that Dominance has been passed from the Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans. That's why the Romans are kind of running the world when we open the New Testament. 400 years have passed. And during that time period, um, pagans and Jews alike are becoming disenchanted with religion as they've experienced it. Pagans were polytheistic, but now they're having questions about that. Boys and girls, polytheism is when you believe in many gods. And they're starting to question that belief of many gods. And then Jews who believe in one God are actually divided among themselves. And um, so there are like three major groups that rise up during this blank period of time of barrenness. One is Pharisees. When you open the New Testament, you start hearing Jesus deal with the, with the Pharisees. Where did they come from? Well, this empty time Pharisees were judgmental legalists. What does that mean? That means they found their excitement over the law, they turned it into a keep the rules religion. Religion for them was about keeping the rules and mostly don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, and don't like people who do that. Okay? So if you're a keep the rules kind of religion person who says don't, 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 and don't 
be with people who don't agree with you, then you might be a Pharisee. But actually, the Pharisees are like weed pullers. You know, you can pull weeds all day long and still not have a garden. And they are like spiritual weed pullers, self-righteous, judgmental weed pullers who uh, keep pulling up the don'ts, but they're barren, they're empty. And this is why where Jesus encountered them many times, empty. The Sadducees, this was the next group, Secular minds, these are the materialists. They uh, are skeptics who oppose the Pharisees, but they can't offer more than the material world when it comes to meaning in life. What's the meaning of life? Well, stuff. Get more stuff. More knowledge, more affluence, and then don't share it. The, the Sadducees were very wealthy, but they didn't share. They're selfish. They're spiritually sterile, which means empty. Barren. Now, so how does it apply to us? Well, if you believe this world is as good as it gets, and if you live your life to get all you can and then can all you get, chances are you could be a Sadducee, which is sad. You see? Yeah, that won't translate either, but I couldn't pass it up. And then there's the Essenes. The Essenes, these are spiritual escapists. They try to escape into the wilderness to get away from their Roman oppressors and uh, form these little monastic communities, you know, of people who agree with them. So if your spirituality is mostly about you and your survival and you use it to escape the real world, then that might be you trying to get away from trouble in a very yearning, empty, barren culture. For a nation, Israel, it was a barren time of unfulfilled longings in an empty culture who was yearning for hope that Messiah could bring. 400 years of silence. And now Zechariah and Elizabeth are a living portrayal of that, of that culture, full of longing, but empty. But there are other reasons that God's first word to break 400 years of silence may have come to them. How about this? Verse five, Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth is also, her family tree goes all the way back to Aaron. He was the founder of the priesthood, Moses' brother. Now, what you need to know is nobody chooses to be a priest. In the history of Israel, nobody chose to be a priest. You were born into it. Zechariah was a priest because his daddy was a priest and his daddy's daddy was a priest and it goes on back. And Elizabeth, her daddy is a priest. All of her uncles are priests. All of the brothers that she has, they're priests. The male cousins in her family, they're all priests. Why? Because you don't have a choice when it comes to being in the priesthood. You're born into it. And you can imagine not having a choice in such a matter as that might leave you feeling a little resentful, like you have no control over your life, like you're angry about it. The reason I'm bringing that up is because verse six tells us that's not Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says, verse six says, they were upright in God's sight, observing all commandments blamelessly. That means they're known for their holiness, for their love for God, that they were they're, they grew up in families that lived for God and they lived for God in their family, but they did it all of their lives with a willing heart. That's what blamelessly means. Their outward 
lives were aligning to their inward obedience and they're doing it all with willing hearts. Which almost makes the pain of not having a child even worse. What do I mean? Well, they're doing everything they know to do that's right. They're doing everything right and yet the priestly line ends with them. No more kids, no more priests, no more family of serving in the temple for them. Now in a culture without, in their culture, without a baby, they would be considered unblessed by God, especially in the priestly line, because now there's nobody left to serve God. It's all over with you. They would be considered neglected, forsaken, forgotten, overlooked. And think of this. They've invested a lifetime of service. Now they're well along in years. But a lifetime of service in the face of a very glaring and unanswered prayer. You ever felt like God wasn't paying attention to your prayers? Their whole life and no child. And now they're old. Now into that overcast sky comes this streak of sunshine. Zechariah's division is on duty at the temple. Now, there were some 20,000 priests in Israel at that time. They would be divided into teams, too many to serve at once, right, who would be responsible to do rotations at the temple. They would manage upkeep and operations. They would prepare and offer the animals. They would teach scripture. They would direct worship. They would pronounce blessings upon the people. But since there's too many for all of them to serve at one time, they got divided into like 24 groups with 800 each. But 800 is still too many to serve in the temple. So what would happen when their rotation came up, lots would be cast to determine who gets to enter the holy place to light the incense of prayer. And if the lot fell to you, that was like a once in a lifetime opportunity. The incense was burned twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. And when people outside the temple would see the smoke rising from the altar of incense, they would offer their prayers because they knew that the priest on their behalf was offering the offering. Now, here's what it would look like inside. The priest would enter the holy place, taking coals from the altar of sacrifice, the altar of sacrifice is outside, takes coals from that altar, brings them in to where the altar of incense was, and then would ignite the altar of incense. Now, it's right outside the curtain that separates the holy place from the holiest of holy places, the most holy place, the sacred place where God dwells, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat are just behind that curtain. The only way to be closer to God than to serve the altar of incense was to be the high priest and actually get to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. It was only entered one time a year. So this was the closest a man could get to God at that time. And guess what? Zechariah is right there, right by the curtain where the offering is being made. This was an unrepeatable opportunity and honor. So he's making his offering and he's inside the holy place, but suddenly he's interrupted. Verse 11 says he's interrupted by an angel. Boys and girls, can you imagine being interrupted by an angel when you're praying at church? That would be cool. I know you're thinking that would be cool. You know what Zechariah thought? No, it's really scary. Because <laughs> that's what happened. He's inside this private space. Nobody else is supposed to be in there. And he's got the fire and he's lighting the incense. And it's this day of a lifetime opportunity. And he's interrupted by this angel. 
And it says he was seized with fear. He's really scared. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. Because he was scared. He says, no, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. And Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. Ha! Huh. And you're going to name him John. And then the angel goes on to say, and John is going to help prepare people for the coming of Messiah. Everything that we've been looking for is about to come to pass. What awesome news, you know? It's like Zechariah. He should be so excited, but instead of rejoicing, you know what he does? He's full of self-doubt. He says, I'm too old for that, basically is what he says. He says, how can I be sure? I'm an old man and my wife, she's also right up there with me. I'm just too old for this. And he's full of doubt. Have you ever sensed that God might God might be calling you to do something and then your first, your first response is, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. And then whatever, you know, you just don't see how it's going to happen. You don't have the money. You don't have the training. You don't have the credentials. You don't have the connections. You don't have the whatever, right? What you've got is what Zechariah had. He had doubts. That's what you got. That's where he is. And I've been there. I'm telling you that I that probably can't count the number of times when I measure God by my humanity instead of measuring my humanity by my God. That's what Zechariah is doing. I mean, all those prayers for all those years and the angel says, they've been heard. Zechariah, did you miss that? He's heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. You should be handing out cigars from God. But instead... I mean, he's, he just got the news. Messiah is coming, and a priest's son named John is going to be the final prophet that's going to get to announce the coming of Messiah. That's the heart of this whole thing, which, by the way, listen, the whole purpose behind the old covenant was to prepare us for coming of Messiah. All of it. Behind the exodus, behind the law, behind the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, Behind all of that, God is, the prophets, God is preparing his people for coming of Messiah. And now it's about to happen. Can you imagine, okay, imagine with me this. You're planning on taking your family to the Grand Canyon. You've never been to the Grand Canyon, but you've heard about it. I mean, by the way, I grew up in Northern Arizona. I've hiked the Grand Canyon twice. I know what the Colorado River sounds like as it's roaring by in the base of that valley. So what you might do, you might start telling them, well, I want to take us to the Grand Canyon. And, and you might tell them about how that Colorado River with its force slices right down in the base to form that canyon. Geologists can tell you how that worked. Or you might tell them that the way to, we're going to go all the way to the bottom, but there's another way to get there. You don't have to hike it. You can actually ride a mule. And I've reserved those mules for us already. You know, you can tell them there's sure-footed mules and they can walk that skinny trail and you don't have to worry about falling because they just don't. Or you might tell them about the width of the canyon or how it's more than a mile deep, Right? Or you might tell them, now kids, I want you to, to keep your eyes open because we're going to see some animals like a bald eagle maybe, native to the canyon, or a porcupine, or a deer, or a bobcat. You know, so you got to keep watching. Or you know what you might do? You might 
give them a taste of some pine nuts. These grew, uh, in my backyard growing up, we didn't have pecan trees. We had pinion pine nut trees. These are like really fancy nuts they put on fancy salads around here, but we used to eat them as kids as snacks. And the teachers really didn't want you taking them to school because they didn't want to have to clean the shells up after the kids. By the way, I got these at Milam's, if you're wondering where you could. If you want to pick some up, they've got them just down the street. Um, or you might just show them a picture of the Grand Canyon. You might say, here's where we're going. But picture can't capture the magnificence of this canyon. And why would you do all of that? Because you're helping to build anticipation as you're portraying the day of arrival when it all happens and you're going to be there. You know what's happening here? This is what God has been doing with Israel. He's wanting to take his family somewhere. And so he starts painting pictures with words and with buildings. He says the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, all the messages of the prophets, everything is coming, portraying the arrival of Messiah who will then become the access point to the living God. Well, what's the family supposed to be learning as they're hearing all of these stories and pictures? That Messiah is coming. That all of the old covenant is pointing to the arrival of the new covenant when Messiah would establish a new covenant with his people. Another lesson they would have gotten is this, that only by sacrifice can a sinner approach holy God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God, so something needs to be done. And God has set up the sacrificial system. And every Hebrew would know this. Every worshiper in Israel in the first century would know this, that when you go to worship at the temple, you take an animal with you that you don't take home. Like a bird or a lamb or a goat or a heifer, because that is part of the offering you leave for the priest to offer to God. Why? Well, it was trying to help the people see that sin is costly, that sin is deadly, and that an atoning act needs to take place in order for a sinner to approach God. So all of those sacrifices were actually teaching devices to help people see what prophet Isaiah was saying, that we each one like sheep go astray. We turn every one of us to our own way, but God puts on him the iniquity of us all. His life becomes a bridge to life, covering the sacrifice. And then a third lesson as they brought their offering would be this, that only by a priest can a sinner gain access to God. If you were to go to the temple, there's no such thing as self-serve worship at the temple. You know, you bring your offering and you give it to a priest who then is not just any priest, it has to be a priest who is selected by God on duty that day and has prepared himself to be able to receive the offering. A priest like Zechariah, who was born for God and then who lived for God and then prepared himself so that on the day of opportunity and he was serving in the temple, he would enter into the holy place on behalf of the people he was called to serve and would then make the offerings of sacrifice as he was allowed to do, as God prescribed. Now, following the sacrifice of the animal from the, I already said, the coals from that fire would be brought in to light the coals from the altar of incense, the prayers of the people. And that's what Zechariah was chosen to do, enter the holy place and offer the incense of prayer. Now, when he goes into that room, you know what he's going to see? 
the furnishings in the room, and each one of them said something about coming Messiah. There was the showbread. Messiah Jesus said, I am the bread of life. There was the lampstand, not just lighting the way in that place, but Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There was the altar where, from which the prayers would rise to God, the altar of sacrifice. Well, likewise, Golgotha was the place of atonement where Christ would intercede the sacrifice himself. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then there was the priest, the God-man who is standing in the gap between the worshipers and the God being worshiped. And so likewise, Christ is the God-man, not just the man of God standing in the way. So here's what I'm trying to say. Understanding the sacrificial system, the temple, the priest, the law, it just suddenly makes such profound sense that when God wants to speak his first word to break a 400-year silence, he gives it to the priest at the temple who was fulfilling his law at the very time that prayers were being offered. And guess what the word was that broke the silence? Your prayers have been heard. Ha, huh. God is making a way where people didn't think there was a way, but the train that is bringing Messiah is going to come on the tracks that God has laid through the, the history of Israel for centuries. Of course he would come to a priest at the temple as prayers were being offered to let us know that God has heard our prayers and that God answers prayer. Now, all of that to say this, what are our takeaways today? It seems to me like the one big life lesson for us as was for them, for me, perhaps for you, is this. Be available to what God has for you. That's the life lesson that comes from both Zechariah and Elizabeth. God is more interested in your availability than in your abilities. Zechariah and Elizabeth knew that for sure. So be available for what God has for you. God has something for you today. Are you available to it? Are you willing to receive it? Be available. Now, Zechariah would say, you know, don't let your doubts keep you from God's blessing because he had his doubts. But here's the thing about Zechariah's doubts. They didn't have him. Doubt and faith travel together, don't they? They do in my life. But that doesn't mean you have to let them have you. Zechariah has his doubts and he's fumbling like at the goal line. I mean, he's a quarterback. He's got hold of the ball, but he's fumbling at the goal line and he, uh, there's a penalty on the play. He's, he's silenced for a period of time. God says, you won't get to tell people about this. Not for a while, but that doesn't mean God doesn't still use him to make the major score of points in the revelation of his coming. Why? He was available. He showed up. He did, he did his duty. He showed up at temple. He showed up in prayer. He showed up with his faith, even though it was mixed. It was raw faith, but you know what? It was real. Maybe you show up the same way. Your faith doesn't have to be perfect for God to respond to it. It just has to be real. You can do that. Then what do we learn from Elizabeth? How about this? Don't let your empty place keep you from God's fullness. The fact and feeling around your 
dead womb, cannot keep God from giving life. None are so dead that God can't give life. There's the message for me. So what is it for us? I think Elizabeth would say, you know, whenever you feel disempowered or disappointed or you're disdaining your own lack of ability or where you are in the timeline of your chronology, listen to me. Don't let your empty place keep you from God's fullness. And Zechariah would say, nope, and don't let your doubts keep you from God's blessing. Be available to what God has for you. What is God calling you to today? Recently, a student um, from our church had a Zachariah-like experience, and he said I could tell it if I didn't say who, who he was, so I'm going to guard his anonymity in this. Um, but young people, you may want to listen because he's in the eighth grade now, and just a few years ago, he started at a new middle school. He was excited to be part of the football team because football was his favorite sport, and he was real excited to get to go to a to a school that had a football team. Because to that point, what he had played was street football. You know, in neighborhood street football, he was like a star. And they, they knew if they got him the ball, he could score with it, right? So in the neighborhood street team, he was a star. Now in sixth grade, as he enters this um, new middle school, he has high expectations about his performance on the field. Like what position am I gonna play? Going to be quarterback, going to be linebacker, going to be wide receiver. What's it going to be? And here's what he knew. Whatever position it was, I could play well in order to help the team win. That's what he's thinking, right? Guess what position they put him in his first year? Bench. <laughs> what? Bench. No, that, they hardly ever put him in. This isn't what he expected, right? So what did he do? Well, every day he showed up. Every day he suited up. Every day, he still listened to the coach. Every day, he still worked on those game plans, you know, started learning the plays. And even at home, he started doing some self-conditioning to try to build his strength. Second year, next season, not much changed. Same kind of experience. Put him in a few times, but not really too much. You know what he did that year? <laughs> he kept showing up. He suited up. He listened to the coach. He kept doing conditioning at home to try to build his strength so that maybe when his moment came, he would be ready. Third season, third season, opening game of the season against their team rival. You know what happens? He's put in a starting receiver. Quarterback throws him a pass. He catches the pass. He scores a touchdown. First touchdown of the game, the only touchdown that their team would score. And win the game seven to six. Throughout the rest of the season, he continued to perform at that level of play to the point that after the season was over, his team named him Offensive Player of the Year. Why? Because he showed up. He suited up. He was available and then ready when his time came. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. I mean, for years, what have they been doing? <laughs> showing up. I mean, they're empty. They've been empty for years, but they're still showing up. They suit up. They go through the drills. They listen to God's word. They keep praying. Even though it doesn't seem like God is listening, they keep obeying. Even though it doesn't seem like anything is happening on the other end, God's not paying attention to us. But by story's end, new life had come. Think of this, the first story 
of the first Christmas, breaking 400 years of silence, was to a priest and his wife who hadn't been able to have a baby but kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up. And then when their prayers are answered, God tells them, you're going to have a son and that son is going to prepare the way of the Lord. And just a few short decades later, that Lord would be saying this, I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. What does that mean? None are so dead, God can't give life. Zechariah and Elizabeth know about that? Yeah. What's the lesson? Be available to what God has for you. Don't let your doubts keep you from God's blessing. Don't let your empty place keep you from God's fullness. Be available. What do you mean? I just mean keep showing up until God does. This Christmas, maybe it's time just to keep showing up until God does. Would you pray with me? This is hard, Lord. Silence is so hard. Empty is so hard. Disappointment. Waiting. We're so grateful that the first story you told about the first Christmas was that you're the God who breaks the silence. That you hear us even when we doesn't, it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't look like it, it doesn't seem like it, but you are faithful. And so we're trusting you today in the midst of our silence and our disappointment and of the hard, this is a hard time of year, Lord. We know there's, there's joy and, and our children are, full of wonder, but sometimes as adults, all we have is I wonder, I wonder. So I'm praying for grown-up kids of yours today who could lean your way and hear you whisper in their ear, don't let your doubts keep you from my blessing. Just show up. Don't let your empty place keep you from my fullness. Be available. And maybe that's where you would like to say to God right now, Lord, I'm available. Whatever you've got for me, I'm open. So I'm drawing near as you promise that you will draw near to me. Perhaps today you're on the front end of your spiritual journey and you'd like to know how to begin a relationship with Christ, each week we offer a prayer like this, and I would invite you to join me in it. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Fill me with your spirit. I receive the gift of salvation. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. And thank you for rising that I might come alive in you. I turn from my way to walk following your way now. Lead me as I pray in your name. Now our heads bowed just for a moment longer, but if you prayed that prayer and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, 
Would you simply raise your hand wherever you're seated? Our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, but wherever you're seated, if you would let me pray with you and for you, would you just simply slip your hand up? And if you're joining us online, there's an orange banner right there on the screen that you can let us pray with you. Toward the center in the back, God bless you. Toward my left in the back, thank you. Over to my right, Would you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, for each person who by uplifted hand has signified a heart open for you, we pray that you would bless their availability now with the presence of your joy and your peace of salvation as you have promised in Jesus' name, amen.